All right, let's go Genesis 15. Genesis 15. God's covenant with Abram. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear, fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be, of, will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you to the, this land to possess. And he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and laid each half against each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Adam, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kedmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. A little bit of context here. What we have is this is, um, you know, after the fall, you have Adam and Eve and the fall and, and God driving them out of the garden. And then you have uh, Noah, right? And then we have the call of Abram in, in chapter 12. And in chapter 22, you have God's call uh, to, to go sacrifice his son, right? So in 12, we have him called to go away and essentially leave his father. In 22, you have the call to go and essentially give up his son. And right here, we have a call to essentially give up his own life. In verse 15, about in the middle. And, and what do we see? Genesis 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis 15, verse 1, it says this. Number one, God speaks. God speaks with Abram. And he says, Fear not, Abram, for I'm your shield and your reward shall be very great. Now, why is that important? Well, in, in, at the very beginning, it says, After these things. Well, after what things? Well, in, in chapter 14, what we see is that there's, there were four kings who went up against five kings, right? Two of the kings of the four were the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah. And they went up and they lost in the battle. Well, at this time, Lot was in, in Sodom, right? And, and so, so he's, word gets back to Abram that he's a prisoner. So Abram goes out with 138 men, rescues Lot, and he brings him back. And, and, the king of, um, and the king of Sodom offers him a reward, and in verse 20, uh, 22 of chapter 14, Adam says to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I made Adam rich. So what, what we see is God saying, you know, Abram, when you went out and you delivered, you, you, you delivered Lot and you were, you were safe and you're 138 men, I was your shield. He's saying, I was your reward. He gives him this first illustration. Um, and, and, he, and he says, you know, you, it wasn't really you. It was, it was I that was doing this. And then secondly, what do we see in verse 2? The second thing is Abram doubts. It's, it, uh, Abram says this in verse 2. He said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. You know, I think this is interesting. This is the first time that Abram responds to God. Right in chapter 12, God calls Abram to leave his leave the Ur of the Chaldeans, and just says he went up and he and he left. He believed. And then also in in, in chapter 13, after uh, Abram and Lot separate, God comes to him and he he gives it, he promises him the promised land. So there's two promises here that that Abram's promised. He's promised land, and he's promised descendants. And and he hasn't really seen evidence of either. So Abram says, well, you, you're my shield, and I, but I was offered this reward. Well, what have you given me, God? There's, there's kind of this doubt. And, and I think it's, it's interesting to look at other people before Genesis. Or, I'm sorry, other people in verse chapters 1 through 15 of Genesis. The people that responded and just obeyed, those are the people that believed. I think of Noah. You know, he, he goes out and uh, a, a, uh, God calls him and he tells him to, to build an ark and he goes and he believes. Now, this is, you know, contrary to the great Bill Cosby comic sketch, right, where he, uh, most of you have seen it. Has everybody seen that? No? Uh, well, uh, I'm not nearly as funny as Bill Cosby, but, you know, he gives him the example of, you know, Bill Cosby says, uh, comes to, to, says, God comes to Noah and says, Noah, I want you to build an ark. Who's speaking? Noah, this is God. I want you to build an ark. And he says, Noah says, right. You know, and, and so he, he gives this example of God keeping, giving these more and more outrageous calls and, and these, these things. And, and Abram just, he continues to, to be more amazed at, at God and, um, he ultimately obeys. But this, so this is contrary to, to Bill Cosby. Noah does one thing. He obeys. Right. Well, who, who, what about the other people in, in Genesis 1 through 15 who didn't obey? We go back to Abram, or I'm sorry, Adam, right after the fall. Right. God comes to him and he says, Adam, did you uh, eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? And Adam essentially blames God and he says, the woman that you gave me, she she gave me the, this food. You know. And then so he speaks to Eve, and Eve says, well, it was the serpent. He's the one who did it. Right, so these the, both of these people are people that responded to God. I think in, in a somewhat unbelief and sh- exposing their sin, really. And then who who else? Think about Cain, right? God comes to him and he says, after he's murdered his brother Abel, and he and God says, uh, Cain, where's your brother? And Cain says, Am I my brother's keeper? You know, it just shows his his unbelief and ultimately his sin of killing his brother. So I think it's interesting here that I think. 
by noticing that God, Abram responds back and speaks back to God, he's, there's a little bit of doubt here. Now, kids, uh, in your notes, you know uh, I have a question here for you, so maybe you guys can get it. When, when our parents tell us to do something like feeding a pet, what should you do? A, find some toys and start playing. B, say, Mom, there's nothing about pets in, in the Bible. There's, I'm sorry, that wasn't right. Mom, there's nothing about pets in the Bible. Or C, listen and obey. Or D, crawl on the floor and bark like a dog. What's the right answer? Go ahead, Maggie. C, good. You know, I mean, uh, in, in our house, um, if, if we tell our, our children to go get food for the dog, anything other than a yes, Mommy, or a yes, Daddy, or may I please do uh, finish this first, you know, usually anything other than that, which, you know, shows a disbelief or uh, uh, disobedience, you know, usually there's grounds for some sort form of disobedience or of punishment. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting here, and it's important that we differentiate between doubt and unbelief, right? Because in Romans 4, where, where, where Paul is talking about Abram, it says in, in verse 19, he did not weaken in faith. And in verse 20, he says, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. I think there's a, there's a big difference here. Doubt is saying, God, I've seen your, you promise these things, and I don't get it. I haven't seen fulfillment of it. Help me understand. I think it's a drawing to God. I think unbelief is saying, God, you say that you're this, and I've seen, experienced uh, this, and I don't believe it, and I'm done. You know, I think doubt is a pressing in towards God. You can't stand to be at, at odds with God. And unbelief is saying, nope, I'm walking away from God. It's not worth it. I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. No thanks. Um, so I think, I think it's, it's, it's important here that we see that Abram is doubting, but he's not, um, he's not unbelieving. And what do we see in, in verse 5? We see, see this. The third thing is God speaks again. Now, is God obligated to come and speak to, to Abram the second time? He's not, is he? God is God. He answers to no one, but he does. I think it shows us that God is patient. I think back in Second Peter three, Second Peter three eight through nine, it says, "But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance." So I think the Lord is is patient and is kind and he's, he's answering Abram and he says this in verse 5. He says, he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I recently read a statistic that they estimate the total number of stars to be 10 to the 23rd power. I'm an engineer, and I don't really know what that means. But um, I, I figured it out. It's a little bit less than a billion times a billion. I think it's also interesting that it's about the approximate number that they estimate the number of sands on the seashore. Isn't that interesting? Genesis 22:17 says, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. Your offspring as the stars of heaven and your, as the sand on the seashore. 
So he gives him the second illustration, right? First, he says, God comes to Abram and he says, I'm your shield, I'm your reward. The second illustration is, look at all these stars. Go out and look in the sky. All these stars, if you can number them, so shall your descendants be. And the response now the second time of Abram is a little bit different, isn't it? In verse 6 it says, And he believed the Lord. So we see the fourth point here is that Abram believes. Now, verse 6 is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. There's this thread of believing the Lord and it counted to him as righteousness is has implications that flow through this chapter, all through the Old Testament, climax at the life and death and resurrection of Christ, go through all the disciples, right? And through 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 the us and and the the, the Protestant Reformation. I mean this is, is one of the key verses in all the Bible. Some verses say it was counted to him as righteousness or credited to him as righteousness or reckoned to him as righteousness. This is incredibly important. We see this three times quoted in the, in the New Testament. One in, in uh, Romans 4, right? The other in Galatians 3, and the third is in James 2. They're all talking about faith versus works. And so God's saying it was, he believed and it's credited to him as righteousness. This is what we would call justification. Justification is this. It's the vo- God voiding the sins of guilty men and women and counting them through righteous, through the faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness is through the redemptive work of Jesus, perfect life, and death on the cross. Right? So, so what happens is we believe in Christ and He takes our sin and He puts it on Himself and His righteous works are placed on us. It's what the theologians call double imputation or putting on. Righteousness is put on us, and our sins are put onto Christ. Now, I think there's a a nuanced thing about justification that I think is very, very important to to differentiate. Our belief is not the thing that justifies us. It's the means by which we're justified. The thing that actually justifies us is Christ's works. So, really, we are justified by our works, but it's not ours, right? It's Christ's works. So, the faith is not really the thing itself that is the justifying act. It's the means in which we get this justification from Christ. There's so much more that can be said. Um, An entire sermon could and probably should be preached about justification. I'll leave that to Pastor Steve. But um, uh, just just to give you an idea, here's two quotes of... Uh, of, of justification. Thomas Watson, the noted 17th century Puritan, said that justification is the very hinge and pillar of Christianity. An error about justification is dangerous, like a defect in the, a foundation. Justification by Christ is a spring of, wa- of the water of life. To have the poison of corrupt doctrine cast into this spring is damnable. And the father of the Great Reformation, Martin Luther, said this, when an article of justification has fallen... Everything has fallen. This is the chief article by which all the doctrine, all other doctrines have flowed. It alone begets and nourishes, builds, perseveres, and defends the church of God. And without it, the church cannot exist for one hour. So, all to say, when we believe, it is credited to us, or counted to us, or reckoned to us as 
righteousness. We are justified. Now, what do we see lastly? We see God comes back, and in verse 9, He speaks again. But He doesn't just speak this time, does He? He gives an illustration, but now He acts. Right? And, and, and what, do we, what do we see? It's, there's an agreement between God and man that's going to be taking place, or between God and Abram that's going to be taking place. Abram believes, and now there's going to be a, a fulfillment of that in, in a covenant. And, it's, and we, we see that in, in verse 8. I'm sorry, in verse 9. God speaks to Abram and He says, He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. And cut these. And He brought, them, brought him all these and cut them in half and laid each other over against each other. But He did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, carcasses, Abram drove them away. <clears throat> So in the ancient Near East, what would happen was they didn't have contracts or you know, they didn't sign a piece of paper when they wanted to buy land or when they wanted to purchase a house or uh, any of those types of things. So what they would do is they would make a covenant. It was sometimes called the cutting of a covenant because what they would do is they would take some animals and they would cut them in half. And then they would go and they would, they, well, they would first go to find a place. And what they would find is they would find a relatively hilly, hilly place and they would find two hills. Right? And then in the valley, they would find a, where it kind of dips down. So they would take these animals, and they would cut them in half, and then they would put one half on one side of the hill, on one hill, and the other half on the other side of the hill. And so the blood would flow down into the valley, and then the blood would flow down that valley. And what they would do is they would walk through this, this blood, and they're saying, you know what? If I don't fulfill my part of the covenant, you can do the same thing is what you are doing to these animals. My name's going to be held accountable because I'm walking through this blood of this animals. And I and, and I think that's a a great picture, and, and as we'll see as we'll see later. This symbolizes that they would pay with their life if they broke the terms of the covenant. So what, what what's Abram's response to this? Look at verse 12. It says, "As the sun was going down." A d- a deep sleep fell on Abram. <clears throat> and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. He's in despair. There's a great and utter darkness on Abram. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. Can you, can you think of some? I mean, number one would be, well, he's entering into a covenant with God. Like, well, now he believed, but he doesn't quite, didn't quite understand, I don't think, what he was getting himself into. So he's he he he's he's making a covenant with Almighty God. I think that's one reason. I think a bigger reason too is that not only is he making a covenant with God, but he's completely unable to fulfill his end of the covenant. Right? I mean, he's called to fulfill his end of the covenant of having descendants and going into the Promised Land. Well, in all likelihood, he'll probably be dead. And he so far hasn't been able to been very successful in having any children. So he's I think there's there's complete and utter inability on his end to keep the covenant. And I think he's in terror. I think he's in despair. There's great darkness on his soul and on his heart. I think there's another thing. Look at um, look at how long Genesis fifteen takes. If you go back to verse 5, 
It says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So this had to have happened at the earliest. I mean, there's no indication that there's a break in any of the day. In the day. So in verse 5, it had to have been at the earliest in the early morning, right? When it was still somewhat dark out. And then verse 12 says, as the sun was going down. So this whole process has taken an entire day. I mean, I don't know whether his, his, his knife was really dull or what was going on here. But, uh, I mean, he probably would have had to gone to his herd, find a heifer, find a ram, find a, you know, find the ram that maybe yielded the, the biggest and it had to be, be perfect. So he'd have to find one that was, uh, you know, maybe yielded the best offspring and he'd have to give that up. And, uh, he'd, he'd have to cut the birds in half. I'm so grateful for these words, aren't you? I think um, we try to domesticate the Bible. We try to turn it into a kid's story. And it's not, is it? It's gruesome. It's violent. It's gory. Um, You know, it's about real people, real struggles, real issues. I mean, I I think about, I I was just reminded because we were listening to a song the other day in one of my kids' CDs, I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. I'm in right, outright, upright, downright, happy all the time. You know, I'm just like, I'm, I don't even know what in right means, number one. <laughs> but the other thing is, I mean, I, I'm an engineer. I'm usually grumpy and melancholy most of the time. You know, um, or, or or this. Any any boys? Are there any boys under the age of 12? What's your What's your favorite Bible story? Favorite Bible story? Most kids. But, any, any guesses? Or what, what's you guys' favorite Bible story? Well, mine was, at least, most kids or most boys I talked to when I would do children's church, it was David and Goliath, right? So, you know, uh, David and Goliath, and, and it's, it's amazing that there's about uh, 12 or 13 children's Bibles or kids' books that I, we have in our, in our home. And, you know, here, here's the story of David. Of course, he goes and he finds the five smooth stones, right? And he goes and he... he he fight, he's going fight, to fight Goliath, and he swings the, his sling, and he hits Goliath with the first stone, right? And what happens? Goliath falls down, right? No, he doesn't die. He just falls down, right? Well, I was amazed the first time I heard about what really happens, right? What really happens? He goes and he takes Goliath's sword out of his sheath, and he cuts off his head, right? And then he picks it up and he shows it to everybody, just kind of something right out of Braveheart or, you know, a gladiator, you know? I mean, well, that's not in any of the kids' books. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, well, I remember, uh, I, I actually think about when my son was about two years old and I proceeded to try to tell him the full story and my wife kind of gently corrected me that maybe that wasn't the best time to... Uh, <clears throat> Actually, this is coming to my mind. Just the other example is he wanted me to tell me tell him a story about bears in the Bible. So the only story I could think of was, you know, it was it is Elisha or Elijah one, and you know the kids are making fun of him, and he calls, and he condemns him, and a bear comes out and he mauls him. You know, so I start going into this, and um, that one I didn't even get nearly through the end of that one before my wife cut me off on that one. But. Um, uh, I mean, some of you who know your Bibles, um, for some reason, there's another story that never makes it in the kids' books, and that's Judges 19. You know, I mean, I, 
you guys can look at that later, and I think you'll know why. But, uh, <clears throat> but I think, notice the change in Abram. Do you see the transformation that's taken place in, his, in, in this chapter? First, he goes from doubting God, and he says, God, you have not given me... I almost defiance, like, look, I'm the one who, who captured, uh, who brought back a lot. You haven't given me anything. I haven't seen any fulfillment of your promises. And to where he goes now, he's like, now he believes. And now he's like, oh my goodness. I am in a heap of trouble. Right? Um, I don't think we can go in front of God and be unchanged. I think uh, God has a way of putting us in our place. He realized he was the problem. It wasn't God, and it wasn't God's promises. He had a little bit of work in his life to do. And now we come to verse 13 through 16. Um, The Lord speaks to him right before he acts, and the Lord says this. He says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be their servants there. They will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So I think God is speaking, and right before he acts, he's going to say, Abram, just in case you didn't, weren't fully aware of who I am, here's a couple things of, of who I am. I think he shows a couple characteristics. You know, I think he shows, number one, foreknowledge. He says, here's what's going to happen 400 years from now, I mean, to be exact, 430 years, as we know later, but 430 years it's going to take and for the exodus to really take place and for them really to come back into the promised land. I think it also talks about God's sovereignty. God is the one that's going to be able to do all these things. He, is, he, is, he has that power. I think it also talks about God's omniscience. God knows what's going to happen. And then obviously his omnipotence is, once again, his power, his sovereignty to make sure that all these things that he promises in these verses is going to take place. And we know in in subsequent uh, books of the Bible, even though it takes all the way to Joshua before they ultimately get into the the promised land, it's a number of of years, 430 years before um, they really ultimately see the fulfillment of this. And then what do we see in verse 17? <clears throat> it says this, When the sun had gone down, now it was dark all complete, completely, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Two items of fire passed through these pieces. They represent God, right? But what do we see? One represents God's half of the covenant, and the other represents Abram's half of the covenant. So God's saying, hey, you know what, Abram? You aren't able to fulfill your covenant, your half of the covenant, but I'm going to fulfill my covenant. I'm going to walk right through that. And you know what? I'm going to make sure that you fulfill your part of the covenant too. If you don't have direct descendants, Abram, and inherit the promised land, I will be the one that's at fault. But I'm going to see to it. I'm omniscient. I'm sovereign. I'm omnipotent. What was the other one? But uh, um, I have foreknowledge. I have all these things. I'm able to make this happen. And so I'm going to pass through it. I have no problem. 
with that. And notice Abram's response. Right? God speaks two times and He acts a third time. Abram speaks twice. He doesn't respond after this, does He? Here's my question to you. Is this covenant really about Abram and God? Or is it about something bigger? Well, I think it's about Abram and God. But it's about something bigger. Because 2,000 years later, the sky was dark, but it was noon. Right? And God hung on the cross, and He was the one that was in despair. And He said, My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? And then moments later, He said, It's finished. It's finished! See, Christ was the promised offspring. He was the fulfillment of this covenant, and He brought in this new covenant. This is a picture of the new covenant with God and all those who believe in Him. See, at the cost of His own blood, Christ would justify us and make us clean. He's the just and the justifier. See, just like Abram, he doubted God and he didn't see the answers to God's promises. So also us. We're prone to doubt and not see God's promises. Just like Abram, was promised land to all his descendants, so also we in this new covenant are promised heaven and to all our brothers and sisters who believe in him. Just like Abram was utterly unable to fulfill any part of his end of the covenant, so also you and I are unable to fulfill any part of the covenant. Just as God took Abram's place at that covenant in Genesis 15, so also Christ took our place in Genesis or in, in the new covenant. Just as God had blood spilt and passed through the blood, so also 2,000 years later, blood was spilt, but it was His own blood, and He passed through that blood as He walked on His way to Calvary for you and for me. Just as God promised to be faithful to Abram, as He promised His omniscience, his omnipotence, his foreknowledge, and his sovereignty in the Old Covenant, so also he promises to us omniscience, omnipotence, sovereignty, and foreknowledge. <clears throat> Just as Abram didn't see the complete fulfillment of the covenant, so also we. We don't see the complete fulfillment of the New Covenant. And we won't until Christ returns. Just as Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, so also we, in this new covenant, if we believe God, it can be counted to us as righteousness. So also Abram encountered God and was changed. And he didn't respond at the end. Right? There was no response. So also us. When we encounter God truly, you can't be unchanged. And all we can do at the end is just say, I'm unworthy. And just worship. So also Abram was comforted by the sweetness and graciousness of God of going through that covenant on his behalf. So also we, you and I, can be comforted by the sweetness and graciousness of God. Richard Sibbs, another great Puritan, says this, the first and chief ground of our comfort is that Christ as a priest offered Himself as a sacrifice to His Father for us. 
a guilty soul flies first to Christ, made a curse for us. How sweet it is when God meets us at a point where we are completely helpless of helping ourselves. As I was preparing and I was thinking about this, the only thing, the only illustration I could think of was two weeks ago, right at Rock Cut, one of the most beautiful testimonies I've heard. Maria Hernandez said this. She said, God took the worst day of my life and made it the best day of my life. Now here's a question for you. Did any of the circumstances that made her day the worst day of her life, were any of those circumstances different at the end of the day? No, not really. Except one thing. One thing. Christ. You know, I have one application. One word, one point. It's Christ. Right? I mean, whatever you're going through, Abram's, God said to Abram, hey, I'm your shield. I'm bigger than your doubt. I'm bigger than the reward that you're promised. I'm bigger than everything in your life. I'm the reward. It's me. It's me. It's me. It's me. To quote Veggie Tales, God is bigger than the boogeyman. Alright, so I, I don't know where you guys are at. To my shame, I don't know half of your guys' names. Um, but I do know this. I just, I just, my challenge to you is this. Are things going well for you? Does, you know, Pastor, Pastor Steve's sermons on suffering just not ring a bell because, you know, things are going well? Well, why? Why is that? Well, maybe it's because you should be suffering, but maybe it's because the Lord's chosen to bless you. If I say this to you, He's your, He's been your shield. Make Him your reward. He's been your shield. Make Him your reward. Are things going miserably for you? Are you like some that I've heard testimonies of, of people just having incredible problems? Um, I don't want to go into examples that we've, we, we all can think of our own examples. I just say this. Look at the picture of God. Look at the picture of Christ. That's all I got. I don't have anything else for you. Maybe some of you are like me. You know, things are going great. I, and are going pretty well. But there's this one thing that hurts and just keeps you up at night. And is the cause for the dark night of the soul. You know, like, or just just hurt and ache over your best friend and your hero being in pain for 13 months. I don't have anything to tell you other than Christ. You know, that's all I got. Uh, I want to close with this. Um, I don't know if this has resonated with you guys, this this message, I, I, I don't, but um, if you guys have been distracted for whatever reason or can't, couldn't focus because <clears throat> I move all over and I have weird mannerisms, whatever. Um, <clears throat> I apologize. I'm, I, but uh, would you listen to this this uh, poem by by the Puritans? <clears throat> listen to the the justification of Christ. Listen to our our place and Christ's place, and think of the new covenant. O God of grace, Thou hast imputed my sin to my substitute. Thou hast imputed His righteousness to my soul. Sorry. 
clothing me with a bridegroom's robe, decking me with jewels of holiness. But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My penitential tears are so much impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many aggravations of sin. My receiving the Spirit is tinctured with selfishness. I need to repent of my repentance. Isn't that a great line? I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to bring to cover my sins, no loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments, and by grace am always receiving change of raiment. For thou dost always justify the ungodly. I am always going into the far country. I am always returning home as a prodigal, always saying, Father, forgive me, for thou art always being brought forth. For though, I'm sorry, those, for thou art always bringing forth the best robe. Every morning, let me wear it. Every morning, every evening, return in it. Go out to the day's work in it. Be married in it. Be wound in death in it. Stand before the great white throne in it. Enter heaven in it, shining as the sun. Grant me never lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful and we are gracious for your faithfulness to Abram, for how you were so sweet and blessed to to be patient with him. Where he went from doubting to believing and being justified and then being entered entering into an agreement with you but you ultimately fulfilling that end of the covenant. Lord, I pray for us. Lord, I just pray that we would look to Christ. I just pray that you would be sufficient, that you would be the God who is omniscient, would continue to be the God that is omnipotent, would continue to be the God that is sovereign, and continue to be the God that knows all things. We look forward to the return of your Son. Thankful for for your many blessings in your name. Amen. I just got uh, two quick announcements. The financial Bible study is at Ray Hooks tonight. And um, uh, the small group that meets at the Dirks, uh, we need to get together for like five minutes in the back. Um, That's all I got. Um, Gordy Bell had something to, to say as we close.